Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. But we are, this morning, continuing a sermon series uh, that we've been in uh, for a little over a month now, uh, two months now, um, in the book of Isaiah, uh, called The God Who Saves. And I know I say this a lot, it seems like we're in Isaiah, but we are on one of my favorite chapters uh, this week, it's a great one. Um, Willie, Pastor Willie, uh, took one of the ones I wouldn't call one of my favorite chapters last week, actually 12 of my nuts, 12 chapters of Judgment. Uh, last week. So thanks for handling God's word for us uh, faithfully with our tough assignment. Uh, but uh, today we'll be in Isaiah chapter 25. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, our reading today is going to be Isaiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. And on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest upon this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. In February of 1865, a Charleston chef named Nat Fuller hosted and prepared one of the most significant meals in that city's long and rich culinary history. 
Nat Fuller was a fascinating man, a fascinating figure in history. He was born into slavery. But um, his owner had allowed him to go to train with the best French chefs in the city of Charleston. A free black woman uh, ran a pastry uh, restaurant and business there in Charleston. And he apprenticed under her, learning the ways of French cooking, melding that with African uh, cooking heritage and local ingredients. He became a caterer. He became a game merchant. And finally, uh, he opened his own restaurant. He struck a deal in the 1850s and moving forward uh, with uh, the man who claimed to be his owner uh, to share property, uh, to share the profits of his restaurant and catering business in exchange for this right to live in some measure of freedom. By the 1850s, he had become one of Charleston's most well-known caterers. He catered the highest and biggest social events. He served as a merchant of game and produce during the Union blockade of Charleston. Uh, he could find uh, good ingredients in game and produce when few could. And then eventually he opened up his restaurant called the Bachelor's, Re uh, the ba the Bachelor's Retreat. So when the Union Army finally took Charleston and installed a provisional government and, en and enacted the Emancipation Proclamation, it was in Nat Fuller's restaurant, the Bachelor's Retreat, that they hosted a dinner to celebrate the emancipation of Charleston's 10,000 enslaved inhabitants, to celebrate uh, the victory and liberation of the city. So on February 22nd of 1865, around giant tables of the bachelor's retreat, black and white, rich and poor, freed slaves, union officers, and members of the new provisional government got together to feast, to toast, and to celebrate the end of one dark era and the beginning of a more hopeful one. An article from the time in the New York Tribune said that the food was, quote, probably the best that had been had in this lean and empty-bellied city since the Union blockade began. Some of what we know uh, about this uh, Nat Fuller's Feast of Reconciliation, we know from uh, the diaries of those who were there, we know um, from listening, from, from clippings like that one, from the news, we also know about it through the letters of some other Charlestonians of the time. One woman, Miss Aggie Porche, a wealthy white Char uh, Charlestonian, found herself reeling from the change of everything she had known about life in Charleston, the end of one government, the end of slavery. Her whole world turned upside down. And she wrote in a letter to a friend, Nat Fuller, a Negro caterer, provided munificently, that means abundantly, for a miscegenation dinner. Two hard words. Miscegenation dinner. That meant a race-mixing dinner. So this chef, this Negro chef, provided abundantly for a race-mixing dinner, which in her mind was a very bad thing indeed at which blacks and whites sat on an equality and gave toasts and sang songs for Lincoln and for freedom. This meal has become something of a famous note. Why does it move us like it does? Why is this such an incredible story? Well, it's because tables mean something. Meals mean something. Right? This wasn't just any ordinary table. It was, in many ways, a symbolic table. 
It was a table that celebrated a victory. It was a table that celebrated a reconciliation. It was a table that, ce that celebrated the end of a dark era and the moving end to a brighter dawn. Tables always mean something. And Isaiah chapter 25 tells us about another meal that means something. A feast that celebrates the close of one dark era and the dawn of another era. The feast of the kingdom of God. When we're told that in celebration of his victory, that God will set a table for all people. That it will be the richest table we have ever sat down to. The, the table with the best food and the best wine. Yeah. And every single person belongs yeah. around this table. Throughout this passage and throughout Isaiah, you'll notice Isaiah saying things like, On that day, in that day, on the day of the Lord. And the New Testament writers are clear. That when Jesus comes onto the scene, in his life, we see the beginnings of that day. Right? And in Jesus, that day out there in the future becomes this day. Yeah. That Jesus came to make that day and that feast a reality within this broken world with our broken tables. This is the reason why all of the gospel writers make such a huge deal about Jesus' meals. Right? Uh, one commentator says that if you read the Gospels, it looks like Jesus is always either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Half of his dis uh, debates with the Pharisees have to do with who he's eating with. He's eating with Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners. And in doing that, it's not just that they thought he was keeping the wrong company. It's that he was saying by his life and around his tables, these are the kind of people that belong in that table. These are the people that belong in my Father's kingdom. Peter Lightheart, a uh, theologian, puts it this way. He says, for Jesus, the feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, he also brought it into reality through his own feasting. Unlike many theologians, he didn't just come preaching an ideology or promoting ideas or teaching moral axioms. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom. And he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. Jesus' whole life, his invitation to us, is an invitation to come to his feast. To the feast of his kingdom, the feast that celebrates his victory over darkness. And his welcome of all people, away from estrangement, away from the things that keep us apart and together in fellowship around his table. And so what we're going to look at in Isaiah 25 is that the feast of the kingdom of God shows us the breadth of God's welcome, the abundance of God's gifts, and the depth of God's victory. First, it shows us the breadth of God's welcome. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine. The, that mountain that he's talking about, when he says on this mountain, he's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Mount Zion at the center of Israel's life. But the feast that God's making there in his victory isn't just a feast for Israel. It's not just a feast for his people, his national people. 
It's a feast for all peoples and all kinds of people. That he shows uh, in this that he is setting a table without preference and without prejudice and without favoritism. Right? That he is building a table that is long enough and wide enough to accommodate all people. And he's welcoming his people in without reference to their nationality, to where they came from, to their wealth, to their power, to their prestige, to their language. That he's welcoming all of the peoples of the world to gather around his table. That when God gives his invitations, he gives them out liberally to all people. You might remember last week uh, when Pastor Willie spoke about God's judgment. One of the main things that Isaiah is telling us in, in uh, Isaiah 24 is that God's judgment is given out without partiality. Do you remember that in, in, uh, in Isaiah 24 too? And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. Right? That all people were subject to God's judgment. And now, in Isaiah 25, he's giving us the other side of that. Right? That if all people are subject to God's judgment, in the same way, all people can receive God's welcome. That just as impartially as God issues His judgment and His righteousness in the world, just that impartially, God issues His invitation to come to Him. You might say that there are none of us who can rise so high as to escape His judgment, and none who sinks so low as to evade His grace. Right? There's never some place that you'll arrive in your life, not if you have the money of Bill Gates or Elon Musk or the, the power of Joe Biden or uh, the, the football playing ability of Tom Brady or the looks of Tom Brady, I don't know. Um, there's all those people that you hold up in this world and say, if I had it like that, I would be free of concern. You can never rise to a place that you are above God's judgment. And in that, that ought to be sobering news. That whether you're rich or poor, powerful or powerless, God looks through all of that to the content of your heart and your moral life and holds us to judgment. But the good news is that you will never sink so low as to be beyond His grace. That there's not a place you can go or a sin you can commit. There's not a wrong-headed belief or an addiction or something that you can have in your life that is more powerful than God's uh, grace. Than His invitation from, you, uh, from Himself to come to His feast where He will welcome you and take care of you and feed you and satisfy you. He gives his judgment without partiality, but also his welcome. We know from the Gospels that the guest list at the Feast of the Kingdom is a surprising guest list. Right? Jesus, when confronted by the Pharisees who are, who are questioning him about the people around his table, in Luke 14, he tells that great story of a man who threw a banquet. A man who threw a party, and when all the normal people, all the people that everybody thought to show up would be invited, when they all had something better to do, he sent his servants out, his messengers. He said, go to the streets and the lanes of the city to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, that my house might be filled. 
This is his explanation of why he's eating and drinking with the people that he is. He said, look, well, the religiously successful and the upright and the respected all said no. And the people who said yes to my invitation were the down and out and the bankrupt and those who knew that they were in need of mercy. And they came, and so I'm going to keep pushing out my invitation to any and all who recognize their need of what I offer. This means that no matter who you are or where you come from, you are welcome at God's table. You are invited. The place is prepared for you. Jesus has already said, you belong here. Yes. Right? Belonging doesn't, it's not something that the church holds on to and hoards and gives away to the deserving. Right? Jesus says, by faith, through repentance, you belong here. You belong at this table. When we come together, right, we come together across the spectrums of class, society, all matter of difference. To come around the table because Jesus says you belong. I know that there are, <laughs> I know there are those of you, because I've been there, that the place you feel in this world like you belong the least is at church and with church people. You feel like they have it figured out in a way that you probably don't. You have the sense that their lives work in a way that yours doesn't. Uh, this idea that faith comes easily for them in a way that it just doesn't come easily for you. Jesus says, you belong here. You belong at this table. Not because of you, but because he says, you belong. And the church exists to extend the open welcome of God to all people. And to welcome all people into tables. Tables in worship, tables in our homes. As a sign of God's coming. And the coming of the feast of the kingdom of God. Secondly, this feast shows us not only about the breadth of God's welcome, but also the abundance of God's gifts. Isaiah almost runs out of words here to describe how lavish this meal is. Isaiah says it's a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Isaiah is just keeping up words to say this is the good stuff. Right? This is your favorite meal. This is uh, the good meat. Right? Whether it's uh, perfectly grilled filet mignon, whether it's fall off the bone oxtail, whether it's delicious fried chicken, whatever that meal to you, that you know, maybe it's Thanksgiving time, you're thinking of that perfect turkey, whatever it is for you that you imagine, oh, that's the meal. That's what Isaiah is saying. That is this. And the best wine you've ever tasted. Right? That he's giving it all to his people, to all people here at this mountain. That you're invited not just to a meal where you'll have enough, but to an abundant feast where you'll have more than you can ever imagine. And in this, it's a sign of the abundance of God's blessing. Right? That his grace is given to us in such an incredible extent that none of us will ever be able to pay him back. Right? He's giving us a meal. Right? You ever go through the thing where somebody has you over for a meal or has you out and they pick up the check? And you feel like just reflexively we say something like, all right, I got the next one. I'll get you next time. I'll bring you over. Next time you're coming over to our house. And it comes from somewhat of a good place. We want to reciprocate. But it's also because we really struggle with being in someone's debt in a way that we can't repay. 
Right? We struggle. We, we have a love-hate relationship with receiving generosity. And God here gives his people a kind of generosity that there's absolutely no prayer in the world of us ever paying him back. There is no meal or no thing we can give back to God that God's going to look at it and say, all right, we're all square. Right? Because that's not the point of grace. The point of grace is that God's generosity gives us something that we could never get on our own. That he pours out life and abundance on us without any thought of us repaying him. Right? There is no, well, God, if you give me this, then I'll go and I'll give back to you. I'll give 10% of all I get, or I'll go be a missionary, or I'll become a pastor, or I'll do everything, you know, I'll do whatever. No, it's all just one-way gift of the abundance of His grace. And it brings joy. The, the symbol of a feast of meat and wine is a symbol of joy and abundance. Again, uh, you remember in the, the preceding chapter, when he's talking about, when Isaiah is talking about the judgment of God in chapter 24, 7 through 9, he talks about the things that human beings look for for joy, running out and no longer satisfying. 24, 7 says this the wine mourns, the vine languishes, and all the merry hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, and the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is better to those who drink it. What he's saying in these two metaphors, these two chapters, is this. Look, every other place that human beings go for joy and for fullness will eventually run out. Right, every place that we look, whether it be to, earth, to our stomachs, whether it be to our bank accounts, wherever it is that we look for fulfillment, eventually in this life it runs dry. But the feast of the kingdom of God will never run dry. It will never run out. I love that this was so central to Jesus' offering and his message that, uh, that John in his gospel records Jesus' first miracle as a response to the problem the wine has run out. Right? He's at the wedding feast at Cana. And his mom comes to him and says, look, the wine ran out. Like it always does in this world, the joy runs dry. And Jesus takes water and he turns it into wine as a symbol of a joy that's on offer that will never run out is the sheer gift of his grace. And so we learn in this to come away from the earth's uh, offers of joy to the one deep well of joy that never runs out. Yeah. We come to his table to receive his grace again and again and again. And it means that we're called as the church to participate in God's generosity. Right? That we serve, you know, God has already told us in this kind of formative symbol that there is always more than enough of the stuff that matters most in life. Right? If you approach life from that way, that there is an abundance of blessing and joy in my life versus there's barely enough and I've got a scrap to keep what I've got, it makes for a radically different approach towards our money, towards our neighbors, towards our possessions, and towards our homes. Right? That we learn, like God, to live with an open hand. 
Right? Recognizing there is, I live in a world in which there is more than enough. That His grace has given me more than enough. And so after the sermon, we'll take an offering. And we've already said that we don't participate in the offering as a way to, to get back or to get even or to pay God back. But we do it as a way to participate in God's generosity towards the world, holding our possessions with an open hand, sure of His grace. And then finally, we learn around this feast about the depth of God's victory. This table that we come to is a victory feast. Right? Look, it's, it's preceded by those verses about God's vindicating His people. At the end, there's the bit about the judgment of Moab. Right? This is the kingdom of God coming through God defeating His enemies, reigning victorious, and then celebrating with His people. It's at this point, um, starting in verse 7, that it becomes clear that what Isaiah is talking about here isn't any ordinary victory. Right? Remember, this is uh, Israel was in fear of the Assyrian invasion that was coming. Later on, they'll be in fear of the Babylonian invasion. But this victory feast isn't just the victory over the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but victory over death itself. Right? Behind the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and later on the Greeks and then the Romans, right? Behind every human fear is the one greatest human fear of death itself. And what's on offer here is a feast where God has defeated that enemy, where we're told that he has swallowed death forever, and that he himself will draw, dry all of our tears and right all of the wrongs of this world. The Lord himself will wipe away tears from all faces, yeah. we're told. Yeah. I love uh, in The Return of the King, the, the finale of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. After the decisive battle, Samwise Gamgee, the little hobbit, wakes up and he looks and he sees Gandalf, who he thought was dead. And he exclaims, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Gandalf replies, A great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. And it fell on his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. All sorrow, all the sad things coming untrue. Look, in this world, there is more than enough reason to weep. Right? All of us. Some, because of stories that I know, many of us, I don't know your whole story. But all of us know what it is to weep through this world and to suffer. We all come in to this table with our stars. But the gift of the kingdom is that all of the sad things will come untrue. That every broken way will be made straight. That every disease will be healed. That every injustice will be righted. That life will swallow up death. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Right? The reason that in this life there's blessing and mourning is because it's a recognition 
Right? That this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That this world is broken in a fundamental way. And we long for a better world. I love the metaphor that Isaiah uses here. Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Think about all of the metaphors that he could have used for the defeat of death. Crushed it, defeated it, killed it, did away with it. But instead he picks swallowed. Swallowed death. What happens when you swallow something? You take it into yourself in order to process it. Right? The way that Jesus defeats death, yes, he crushes it. Yes, he blows it away. Yes, he kills it. But he does it by swallowing it. Right there on the cross, or there in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Right? He's looking ahead at the cup of death, the cup of God's judgment. But what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he drinks the cup of death, takes it into himself, and defeats it. So that when Paul, the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 is wrestling for biblical metaphors to talk about the resurrection, he comes to this chapter, Isaiah 25. He has swallowed up death forever. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He offers us freedom from the fear of death. Death swallowed up and done away with. This means that in Christ you have reason for hope. Right? You have no reason to live in fear of death. Because the poison of death, the judgment against sin and unrighteousness has been swallowed and done away with. So he offers us, just to summarize, an abundant welcome, a wide welcome, an abundant feast, and freedom from the fear of death. You might, read, you might hear that and go, well, who on earth would refuse that? Right? Who on earth would refuse this welcome, this grace, this hope? And in conclusion, Isaiah gives us the character of Moab. That's who finishes out these, path, these last couple of verses. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain where the feast is. And Moab shall be trampled down in his face, in its place. Chapters 15 and 16 of Isaiah, the, those long judgment oracles, gives two whole chapters to Moab. And what Moab is known for was refusing help from God. But in their pride, they refused to seek help from God's people. And so now they receive judgment. Right? The thing that comes between us in the invitation to this table, right? it's not our dirtiness or our uncleanness, Right? It's not uh, that we've done something too bad. It's our pride. It's the pride that keeps ourselves from humbling ourselves enough to say, Lord, I need your invitation. I welcome your invitation. Bring me to your table. Feed me with your food. In 2015, in Charleston, a scholar at the University of South Carolina scholar of Southern food history, sought to recreate Nat Fuller's Feast of Reconciliation. He gathered together black and white leaders and people 
in Charleston. Some of the finest chefs in Charleston agreed to help make food to try to reconstruct the best they could Matt Fuller's menu. They gathered uh, there in, uh, at a fine restaurant in Charleston. They gave toasts. They celebrated. They ate the food. Dr. Shields, the, uh, the South Carolina scholar who hosted, said that it was a glimpse of the kingdom of God, seeing these people gathered around recreating this meal. One of the people invited to that meal was the Reverend Clemente Pickney, pastor of Mother Manuel AME Church, who was shot uh, two months later along with 12 of his people. Uh, in that uh, hate crime at Mother Emmanuel. A feast of the kingdom of God on one hand and the brokenness of this world on the other. What does God say to us in Psalm 23? David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right? That in this world we always have a foot in two places. Feasting with Christ living an abundant life in Christ, knowing that there's hope for us, that he is making all sad things untrue. And yet we live in this world, a world that is marred by brokenness and hatred. And when we come around this table, when we come around Christ's reconciliation feast, it is a table in the presence of our enemies. It's a table that shows to the world that hope is possible, that grace is real, yeah. and that all people are welcome. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to come to your table, Lord, we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes to see you. The one who swallowed up death forever. The one whose hands, whose very own hands will dry our tears. Lord, that it's you who we worship, that it's you who invite us to your table, it's you who shower us with your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.